course, gone in Wyoming. Um, and so we're a little off the schedule. You know, I've got the uh, newsletters in the front that have got our calendar of our events. And one of the things I put in there is our text for every Sunday. So you can read ahead or read after and try to uh, study for yourself some. But we got a week off, but we'll catch back up um, because I was supposed to be gone next week and I was gone last week instead. I do appreciate us getting, being given the opportunity to go up to Wyoming to spend some time with her family uh, for the uh, memorial service for her grandfather. Um, pray for them. Pray for salvation in that family. Um, they are, several of her family members are members of a, uh, a church that is not a lot of gospel. Uh, it's a social club type church where you go, Colleen said she went with her grandparents several times over the years, and um, they, it's just about how you need to be a good person. Well, I'd like for you to be a good person, but I'd like for you to be a saved good person, you know? Um, and it's, unfortunately, I think it was Howard Hendricks, who was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for a long time, who said that uh, just like to keep somebody from getting the flu, you give them a mild form of the virus, uh, a lot of people have got a mild form of Christianity that keeps them from ever getting the real disease. And unfortunately, somebody who has a superficial Christianity is much harder to win for the gospel than someone who realizes who they are and what they are. You know, you've got to have a change deep in your heart. And uh, except you repent, there's no hope. And just pray that God would grab a hold of that family in a supernatural way, um, pour his grace out on them, draw them to himself that they would place their faith in Jesus and be saved. I know that would be a great blessing. Um, and I know that uh, Colleen's dad is, uh, has come here and spent some time with us and been blessed by his time here and is more receptive. And if uh, God leads him to salvation, then I trust that he will be an instrument to win his family. And it's just a, a wonderful thing. You know, it's hard on Colleen to know uh, or to not know, you know where, where her family really stands. Because they know some of the right answers, but the, they're just not the, not the kind of changed life that the gospel brings. And so pray for her, pray for them. We are now, of course, picking back up, <coughs> excuse me, but Wyoming, there's the air. It's wrong. There's nothing right about it. It is uh, thin and dry and full of pine trees. And uh, we spent a week, of course, at church camp two weeks ago. And uh, I got more pine than I wanted there, and then we went to Wyoming. And in addition to being oxygen-deprived by being at the top of the world, I was uh, pined again, and now I've got this nasty cough. So I'm going to do my best not to breathe too much. As we pick back up here in John chapter 6, we are on the fourth sign. We've seen the two signs in Cana. We saw the wedding at Cana showed that Jesus is the one who makes a change. We saw in the healing of the nobleman's son that Jesus is the one who responds to faith, that he's not bound by space. We saw in the healing of the man who had been lame for 38 years that Jesus is not bound by time. He can heal on the Sabbath. He is the Lord. Today we come to a very familiar story. Familiar one because it is the only miracle that is included in all four Gospels. I say that. There's one other miracle that's included in all four Gospels, and that's the resurrection. But other than the resurrection, Matthew tells some, Mark tells some, Luke tells some, John tells some, but all of them include the feeding of the 5,000. 
Now, that may seem a little strange to you. If I were picking a miracle to include in all four Gospels, and you asked me what the most important miracle was, I might say the raising of Lazarus. I, I might say the um, Jesus uh, sent, taking himself away from the cloud and them not noticing. I, I would say the raising of Jairus' daughter. I, there's, no, there's no idea what I might pick. But I probably wouldn't pick something about a lot of bread. But the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the most theologically rich miracles. As I'll go ahead and tell you what my struggle has been this week, is part of me wants to say, I can't see the clock because the tablecloths are in the way, and go through and tell you everything that I would like to tell you about the feeding of the 5,000. Unfortunately, we've only got about 40 minutes and then uh, you'll all start to fall asleep, and it won't matter how long I talk up here if you're not listening. But this miracle has got so many different angles on it. It's very difficult uh, when teaching the Bible because you could spend as long as you want on a small section. But it's also my responsibility to give you the whole counsel of God. So it's my responsibility to tell you what the Bible says at this place and also to tell you the whole counsel of God, to give you a glimpse of the whole Bible. So if I spend uh, 10 years teaching through John, then we will, you'll not get to learn all the fantastic things the Bible has in Romans and Hebrews and Acts and Genesis and Exodus and all these other places. So you've got to strike a balance here. So what I'm going to encourage you to do is this week to read through John 6 for yourself and uh, see how much more there is than we can possibly talk about. Now, to give you a little bit of background, we have to talk about Moses. When Moses led the people out, remember it was at the Passover, and the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They were finally led out through 10 plagues. The 10th plague was the death of the firstborn. Remember, they each slaughtered a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost of their house. And God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And instituted the holiday of the Passover. Moses then took them to the Red Sea, One of my favorite lines in the Bible, uh, it says that Moses got there and he uh, cried out and he prayed. And God said, why criest thou unto me? Tell the children of Israel to move forth. You know, uh, Moses said, what are you praying about? I already told you what to do. God said, what are you praying about Moses? I already told you what to do. You know, how often do we, this is free, this isn't even a part of what we're talking about today. How often do we say, well, you know, I really need to pray about that. Somebody says, have you witnessed to that person? Have you told them about what Jesus did for them? And you said, I just need to pray about the right time. And God says, what are you crying out to me for? I already told you to move forward. Now somebody says, well, you know, I'm just, uh, just really praying about being baptized. And God says, I put that in the Great Commission. On my way out, I gave you marching orders. And somebody says, you know, I, I know that this person needs something, and I, I'm just praying about whether this is the right time, the right time for me to help them. God says, why Christ thou unto me? Tell the children of Israel to move forward. So then Moses said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. He lifted up his staff and the Red Sea parted. They crossed the Red Sea and they were separated by God. They went out in the wilderness and you remember there was no food. So they, God sent manna down and they ate the manna. Manna is Hebrew. What is it? They ate it. And uh, every day they had just enough. Every day they had exactly what they needed. And the next day, it was gone. 
Uh, Of course, on Friday, they had a double portion so they could make it through the Sabbath. And then, uh, of course, they prayed. They said, this manna, we're sick and tired of this manna. Manna all the time. Manna for the morning, manna for night. Um, And, of course, if when God had taken them to the border of the promised land, they had had faith and gone in, they would have been done with their manna diet. But because they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, they have manna for longer than they were intended to have manna. There's another lesson about the Christian life there, about if I, why do I have to keep dealing with these same basic things? Well, if you would have grown up when God had called on your faith, then maybe you could have moved on. Anyway, sorry. I get gone for a week and I get downright fiery. You're going to have to keep an eye on this one. So as we go on through the wilderness, finally they cross the Jordan River and they are allowed to enter the promised land. But one of them is not. Well, almost all of them are not. They, they die for their unbelief. Joshua and Caleb go in. Moses does not. Moses is allowed to sit on the rock and look at the promised land, but is not allowed to enter in. Why? Well, you remember, they had water from the rock. God told Moses to strike the rock, and water would come out of it for the people to drink. And after that, to speak to the rock and have water. Moses, of course, gets upset. He, the people are complaining, and he says, are we to give you water like this? He strikes the rock again. And God says, for your sin, you will not enter the promised land. You say, well, that's strange. And then the book of Hebrews tells us that the rock was Christ. The rock symbolizes Jesus. Jesus, the source of the streams of living water. How many times was Jesus crucified? Just once. And that one time that he was stricken by God and afflicted was enough for all. So what do we do now? You know, our Catholic friends say that every time they celebrate the Mass, they crucify Jesus again. They offer Jesus again on the altar. We don't have to do that. Jesus was offered once and for all, the just for the unjust. So now what do we do for the forgiveness of sins? We speak to him. So for Moses' pride, Moses' sin, Moses' mistreatment of the symbol of Christ, he was kept out of the promised land. You say, what does all that have to do with John chapter 6? Let's look. John chapter 6, verse 1 reads, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, Jesus had been in Jerusalem when we last saw him, when he was healing the man (coughs) at the pool of Bethesda. He comes along, and he uh, goes way north, crosses the Sea of Galilee. John skips a lot of time. And he the Sea of Galilee, which is also the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, Tiberias was what the Romans called the city. There was a city named Tiberias that was founded in about 20 A.D. on the south side of the sea. And uh, John was writing for people who had never been to Israel. And so he tells them that Tiberias, what they know it as, is the Sea of Galilee that the Jews call it. Um, It says, and a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. Now, Jesus has got a big crowd. When you piece this together with the other Gospels, this is uh, just at a year before Jesus' death. And he has this massive crowd following him. But unfortunately, they are not following him because of who he was. They're following him because of the signs that he did. Now, we always have to walk a balancing act. We want to see people reached. And uh, I think we can all say the more people in heaven, the better. They'll be from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. But... 
when we gather a crowd for the sake of gathering a crowd, we can gather a crowd for the wrong reasons. Now, I wanted to point out our Vacation Bible School decorations and stuff um, are not the main event. We, we do this, the kids come in, they like it, they're excited, they know that we take it seriously. Uh, the same way that we keep the church clean and different things so that you all know that we take it seriously, that we care about what we do here. But primarily, the uh, purpose is to give them the truth of God's Word. Um, you know, we, there's the Vacation Bible School Seminar in Pasadena where churches from all over come and uh, do the, learn about the different lessons. And to tell you where my priorities are, they've had me teach, they've asked me to teach that seminar uh, four years in a row now, and they do not have me teach on the finer points of auditorium decoration. They don't have me teach on uh, how to get people to pre-register for your vacation Bible school. The lesson that I have, thank you very much, the lesson that I have every year is uh, transformational teaching, or teaching to change lives. Because to me, that's the only thing that matters, is how can we use the Word of God to change the lives of men, women, boys, and girls? And you say, well, they're just kids. What happens, what you plant in somebody's heart stays. You know, you reap what you sow. One thing that many of you know is there are stories in the Bible now that you know, there are verses you know, principles you know, that you couldn't tell me when you learned them because you learned them so young, they were implanted in your heart and they've just never gotten loose. The stuff these kids learn, they carry with them for the rest of their lives. If I had a chance to change a river at the beginning of the river, the middle of the river, or the end of the river, I'm excited when somebody who's older comes to Christ or middle-aged comes to Christ. But if you can redirect the river at the very beginning, you can make a huge change for the whole thing. And so what a privilege it is to do this. So these people were following Jesus, not because of the word, but for the sign. And if I can get on a little bit of a soapbox, you know, I, we don't have an arcade, right? We don't have a, different things like that. Because one thing that I believe is that what you catch people with, you have to keep them with. You know, and if we uh, say, you know, come to church, get a $25 gift card, well, then next week the church that has a $30 gift card is going to get them instead, right? And I, there are churches that do kind of gimmicky things like that. These people were following Jesus because of the gimmicks. But if you don't follow him because of what's in your heart, then as soon as you hear what he really has to say, you're going to leave. After Jesus performs this miracle, they try to make him a king. Once he explains this miracle, they all leave. Turn their back on him. Sometimes we set people up for failure. Sometimes the way that churches, we can be well-meaning, but sometimes the way that we operate makes it harder for people to follow Christ instead of easier. You know, we want to make things as easy as possible. We want to be as sensitive as possible. You know, I, and I'm all for that. I try to, especially on Sunday mornings, not assume that you know anything about the Bible. I'll tell you what page number things are on. But if it gets to the point where we water down the message or offer up substitutes for the message, then there's no power. There's no power. And so, as we see this, Jesus comes, they follow him for a season, but these are not people who are really changed. So, let's see how long he allows that to go on. 
A great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, we understand, to kind of get away from the crowds and spend some time in prayer. And there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. This is Jesus' last Passover before his death. He'll die the following Passover. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company coming to him, he said unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? He turned to Philip, and you remember Philip was from the region. Philip was a Nazarene also, a Galilean. Uh, And so he turns to Philip and he says, Philip, you know this neighborhood. Where can we get some food for uh, this multitude of people? The other gospels tell us there were 5,000 men. That's a lot of people. 5,000 men, you know. And you say, well, if they each brought their wife and one child, that's 15,000. Well, let me tell you, if you start studying the uh, Hebrew culture, your wife and one child was not the situation. They had multiple children, and they, they would come and they would travel, and there's a huge crowd, bigger than we can imagine. In fact, we're going to find out in just a minute that eight months' wages would not have given each one of them a bite. This huge number of people, this huge crowd. And he turns to Philip and he says, hey, Philip, where are we going to get some food for these people? Now, you remember Philip has been traveling with Jesus for two and a half years now. He has seen Jesus perform many marvelous signs. But what does he say? Well, verse 6, of course, says, and he said this to prove him, for he knew himself what he would do. Jesus is testing Philip because he already knows what his plan is. Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. Philip says, if we had 200 days' wages, uh, the word penny here is the Greek word denarius, which is a day's wages for a laborer. If we had 200 days' wages, eight months, we couldn't give each one of them a little. It's very difficult, of course, to convert ancient money to modern money because the standards of living were so different. But if we just say the average American today makes about $30,000, that's the average salary in the United States. It's $33,000. Eight months' wages would be about $20,000. So Philip turns and he says, we could spend $20,000 and we wouldn't even be able to give them all a bite. That's a crowd. How often? we who have walked with Jesus, when a problem comes up, suddenly our head is right back in the world. You know, you, we see something that needs to happen. And we say, and God, God lays something on our heart. You say, you know, I, I feel like I need to do this. And then you look at the numbers and you say, well, there's just no way. How faithless. You know, one of the things that constantly surprises me about us, about Christians, is how short our memories are. God did something for us yesterday and today. We wonder how we're going to make it through. Philip had traveled with Jesus, spent years with Jesus doing things which nobody else could do. And then when there's a crowd of people to feed, he says, I just don't know. I don't know where we're going to get $20,000. A lot of churches think like that a lot of the time. I can look at some problems, some things we need to get done here, and I can say quite honestly, I don't know where we're going to get (laughs) $20,000. But God does. The same God 
that started it finishes it. So we say the second verse of Amazing Grace, which was grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The God who started it is the God who finishes it. And if we are so faithless that we doubt God, it's because we've forgotten what he's already done for us. You know, you look at a problem, and maybe you sit there and you, you look at your bills, kind of an easy example, and you say, okay, I don't know how I'm going to pay these bills. And then if you were being honest, you would say, huh, I remember when I was spiritually dead and Jesus called me to life again. I remember when Jesus was dead in the tomb for three days and he conquered. I remember when Jesus fed 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish. I remember when Jesus called Lazarus up from the dead when he walked on the sea. I remember all these things. And that God has the power to take care of whatever problem you've got. So why do we have such short memories? Why is it that we cannot see clearly? I think it's the same thing that Jesus would say later in the Garden of Gethsemane. The spirit truly is willing, but the flesh is weak. Your spirit wants to believe, but your body, your anxiety, all these nerves come up. And we allow ourselves to be mastered by flesh instead of spirit. But Jesus will say later in this chapter, flesh profits nothing. The, the, (coughs) excuse me, We spend all of our time and all of our energy and put all of our eggs in the basket. It's got a hole in the bottom. Why is it we've got two canteens to carry water with? We put all our water in the broken one. You've got the spirit and you've got the flesh. And you know you've got so much energy, so much time, and you know you can keep what you put in the spirit You build up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And you know that whatever you put in the flesh, rust will corrode and the moth will destroy. And yet, what do we do? Every single time, Jeremiah said, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We abandon what can save. We abandon what can satisfy nothing because of our flesh. So he comes and Philip, of course, does not do so hot in this test. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, there is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? See, I, I like Andrew. So far in the gospel of John, Basically, we just see Andrew do two things in the, in the whole Bible. Both times we meet Andrew, both times the Bible tells us something specific about Andrew, he is doing the same thing. When we first met him, he came and he got Peter. And he said, Peter, you've got to come see this Jesus. Here, he brings the little boy with the five loaves and the two fish to Jesus. Both times we see Andrew, he does not have all of his thinking right. You know, he still says, what are they among so many? But both times we see Andrew, he is doing the same thing. He is bringing someone to Jesus. I'll forgive a lot for somebody that is bringing people to Jesus. 
You know, and, and you've got a problem. Somebody, when somebody else has a problem and they come to you, what do you do? Oh, that sure is bad. Yeah, I don't know how that's going to work out. You know, when somebody said uh, it was Jerry Bridges uh, wrote a book called Respectable Sins. And in that book, he said, when we complain, we sin twice. Once by doubting the sovereignty of God and once by, de- by uh, tempting our listeners to do the same. When I complain, I say, oh, things are just so terrible. I'm doubting God, and what I really want is for you to doubt God with me. Isn't that true? When you complain and somebody doesn't go along with it, what do you do? Bristle up. Say, what? And I'm going to go talk to somebody else. You just don't understand. See, here, our temptation is always to see somebody come in the flesh, to go along with it, to take things to the flesh. But how much better would it be if we were always bringing people to Jesus? (laughs) Yeah, just five loaves and two fish. I don't know what that's going to be among so many, but let's take it to Jesus. I don't understand who this Galilean carpenter is that's just come to town, but Peter, let me take you to Jesus. I want you to meet him yourself. What, what kind of a life could we have if our answer to every problem was, how can I bring this person to Jesus? And so he does. It's meager. Five loaves, two fish. Two fish, the word is actually like condiment, like chopped fish. He's got two tuna cans to put, scrape on the bread, because barley bread is no good. Never had barley bread. Rough, it's unpleasant to eat. He says, what are they among so many? But because he brought the boy to Jesus, Jesus takes care of it. Jesus said, make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in this place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. It doesn't mean the women and children stood. It means the men, there were 5,000 men that sat down, the women and children sat down, and just so we can number them separately. He said, 5,000 sat in the grass. You know, when uh, we went to Israel, they take you to the spot that they say was the feeding of the 5,000 because uh, they feed on tourists, right? (laughs) They pick a grassy spot and they say, yes, this was the place, and they... Our Catholic friends build a cathedral there, and it's great. But even so, even though, of course, there's no way to know. You could have picked any mountain on the north side of Galilee, or the north side of the Sea of Galilee. When you see a big open space, just think of the biggest space you've ever seen, and imagine it filled with people. You think, what a problem. And you imagine in the lives of each and every one of those people, the glory of God put on display. So there's this massive crowd of 5,000 people sitting and waiting to be served. Why does he have them sit down? Well, really, the reason he has them to sit down is he wants it to be crystal clear who did this. Why is it that God sends most of the soldiers away when Gideon goes to fight the Midianites? Is it because God can't use more? No. He tells Gideon, if I let you do this, you'll take the credit. See, if there had been a big crowd, a big mob, 
people would have said, well, I guess, yeah, I guess some of those people did have some food after all and all the exchanging and different things. As some uh, theologically liberal theologians uh, said, the miracle in this was a miracle of the heart, where when they saw Jesus passing out the five loaves and two fish, the stingy people decided to share. Some people will do anything they can to avoid the simple truth of who Jesus is and what he does. So Jesus says, I don't want there to be any confusion. Everybody sit down so we can see who's doing the work here. It has everything in order. You know, let all things be done decently and in order. He sits everybody down. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise to the fishes, as much as they would. Jesus takes the fish, he takes the bread, he passes it out to the disciples, the disciples pass it out to the people, and everybody eats as much as they would. You know, the one commentator said that the, uh, at the end of this meal, nobody thought another piece of bread would be nice. Everybody was perfectly satisfied. Now, what's kind of interesting here, Jesus took the loaves and he gave thanks. How often are we so flippant about what God provides for us? I uh, read something somewhere a long time ago, and I can't place it, where somebody said, they were talking to a, they were a kid and they had gone to visit an atheist neighbor's house and they were eating. They said, uh, the kid said, weren't you going to pray? And the uh, atheist neighbor said, no, I just dig in. And the kid said, my dog does that too. You know, how ungrateful are we sometimes? How quickly do we not take the time to just bow our heads and say, Lord, thank you? When you eat a piece of bread, you ever think about everything that happened so you could have that bread? For how many thousands of years was God preparing that soil, that soil with nutrients? thousand, two thousand years, it's been gathering nutrients from the waters. God sent the rain. God sent the sunshine. God sent the seed. God prepared it for that moment. And then God gave the people the strength to pick it. He gave the businessmen the wisdom to establish the business, to grind it into flour, to make the bread, gave you the health to go to the job, to get the money, to have that bread. If you really sat down and went step by step by step, and you thought, what all happened so I could have this food? It's marvelous. You say, why do I have to thank God? Oh, I have to thank God because I could never have controlled all those things myself. And sometimes people say that. They say, why should I thank God for this food that I work for? And you start to think about how much beyond your control was involved. Moreover, Jesus, who spoke and the world was, without whom all things were made, that whom was not anything made that was made. Everything that existed, existed because of Jesus. He still gave thanks to set an example for us. So he takes this bread, these five loaves and two fish, 
Yeah, what would you do? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, five loaves and two fish. What good is that going to do? We, we get ungrateful when we think something's not enough, don't we? He says, five loaves and two fish, and he lifts it up and he thanks God for it. (laughs) And they pass it out, and everyone is full. I told you that we're not going to have time to talk about everything here. Let me go ahead and tie this in for you. Later on in this passage, Jesus is going to say, I am the bread of life. The Israelites, when they find out what Jesus did, when they find out about this miracle, they had always believed that when the Messiah came, he was going to give them manna again. They just made that up. It's in one of the apocryphal books. It's not anything in the Bible. But they believed they would be given manna again when the prophet like unto Moses came. And so when they see bread, they say, this must be the bread from heaven. And Jesus says, I am the bread from heaven. They we told you when the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, they ate the manna, they got enough for themselves, and it was gone. When Jesus comes and he feeds the 5,000, everybody is full and there are 12 baskets left over. Jesus said, you thought the manna was good. For me, I've got all the apostles' lunch tomorrow taken care of. Jesus says, whoever eats of my bread will never be hungry again. Whoever drinks the water that I give will never thirst again. And you know what the crowd said? They said, Lord, give us this bread always. But they didn't want it. <laughs> they said, when they said, give us this bread always, they thought, wow, that bread you gave us yesterday is like the tree of life. If we keep eating it, we'll never die. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the manna that comes down from heaven. This miracle, this miracle shows Jesus is the sustainer. Jesus is the provider. Why do we insist on eating things that do not satisfy? Why do we insist on chasing things that will never make us content? How do you know it won't satisfy? Well, Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, tries everything. What does he say? Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, all is vanity, and chasing after the wind. I want you to find somebody that has tried what you think is going to make you happy and see if it works. You know, somebody, um, the, you got a teenage boy who thinks this girl is going to make him happy. Will you try it? And eventually, she may be the sweetest person in the world, but eventually she's going to let you down. You've got somebody, and they think, if I can just get this promotion, then I'll be happy. They get that promotion. Suddenly, it's not everything it's cracked up to be. And we talked about this. We talked about this before. But somebody who's got $30,000, makes $30,000 a year, says, man, if I could just make $50,000 a year, I can see how all these numbers work. I'd just be on easy street. I've never met anybody who made $50,000 a year and said, I'm just on easy street. That's somebody there, they say, if I just had $80,000 a year, maybe you could go on and on and on. But whenever, you know, most of you probably make more money than you used to. And if I had asked you 10 years ago, 
what life would be like with the amount of money you make now. You say, oh, that'd be fantastic. But it never satisfies. It's a moving target. One of, the, uh, one of my pastor friends is a missionary in Austin, uh, Corey Page. Uh, Austin is one of the most unchurched cities in America. It's a huge secular wasteland. Um, and he said something, he posted something on Facebook the other day. He said, if success motivates me, my priority is myself and not God. And at first, I wanted to argue him because I didn't like that. I didn't like that at all. But it's true. If I think what motivates me is ministry success, seeing people reach, seeing things happen, that never satisfies. It's a fantastic thing to hold somebody's hand and pray with them as they trust Christ. But it's not the end thing. There's always, you always need to reach somebody else. You're never happy. You're never satisfied with it. So we do those things, those things are good, but we do not seek our satisfaction in them. The only thing where we all have enough, where there, no matter how much we take, there is always more, is to find our satisfaction in Jesus. To say, yes, bread of life. Uh, maybe some of you have heard the hymn, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Feed me till I want no more. You know, we live our lives with all the wrong things. These people that were following Jesus, they were looking for a miracle. But no matter how many miracles he performed, it was never enough. They never said, okay, that's enough signs. Thank you, Lord. When you pray and you look for God's hand instead of his face, God will meet that need, and you know what they'll be the next time? There'll be another need. It'll never satisfy <laughs> But when you say, Lord, to you, I go. When you say, you are my satisfaction, that you are all I need, you are all I want, there is always enough. God is a well so deep, you can never drink it all. He is bread so full that people have been eating his flesh for 2,000 years. There's more. You know, that, that's the, I, I don't want to say this in a way that's going to sound uh, blasphemous. I don't, I'm, I'm going to say it and I'm going to try to explain it. God, the glory of God, the love of God, is the only thing that when you partake of it, there's more of it than there was before. I don't mean that when we uh, experience God's glory and praise him that he becomes more glorious, but I mean that his glory is put more on display. When we serve him and he blesses us, suddenly other people can see him and his more and more and more and more. There are 12 baskets left over because there were 5,000 men. I bet if there had been 10,000 men, there would have been more baskets left over because that's just the way God works. And so when we come to God, when we share Jesus with others, we don't run out. When you witness to somebody, when you tell somebody, this is what Jesus did for me, this is what he can do for you, you do not have less of Jesus than you did before. You have more. So I wonder, how many of us are like Andrew? How many of us are always bringing people to Jesus? 
I was joking with a pastor uh, the other day. Maybe I was half joking. I said, can you imagine how much easier church business meetings would go if everybody got one vote per person they had led to Christ? If the more on mission they were, the more say they got. I was only half joking because we all have the Holy Spirit. We're all led by God. We all, we're all priests. You know, it's not, I don't actually think we should operate that way. But what if you decided how much you trusted your own judgment by how much you'd been on mission with Jesus? And he said, you know, I feel this way, but I haven't even talked to anybody about Jesus in six months. And this person over here, they've led two people to Christ. They're following him closely. They probably hear the Spirit better than I do. I'm going to submit to that. How different would your life be if you, didn't, if you decided how much you were going to trust your own judgment based on how much you had exhibited God's guidance? If we are going to follow God, there's one way to do it. See, maybe some of you have followed somebody in a car before. I'm sure you have. And things are going really well until you're behind them there's a red light that they think is pink. They go down here. You're stuck on the other side, and you can't follow them anymore. You've gotten behind. What do you do? You know, sometimes you are trying to follow God, but some obstacle gets in your way, and you, you just don't make it past it. You know, you're following God, and then a hiccup happens. You fall into some kind of sin. You get separated. What's the easiest way? fix that. Well, I'm following somebody. I want to know where we're going. So let's say Colleen and I are leaving the house, and she says, okay, follow me. We're going to Walmart. Well, if we get separated, I can still go there because I'm going the same place she's going. If she says, follow me, we're going to Hobby Lobby, I'm going to beat her there, get in front of the cashier, block it. We don't take cash. We don't take credit to Hobby Lobby. All cash. Here's five dollars. If I'm following Jesus, the best way to follow Jesus is to find out where Jesus is going. Where is he going? He said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. When was the last time that you made it a priority to tell somebody about how God can change their life? When was the last time you made it a priority to tell the gospel? What's the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15. I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. How he was buried. How he was raised again the third day according to the scriptures. When was the last time you told somebody the wonderful words of life? They, uh, somebody said the gospel is not somebody that's better. Evangelism is not somebody that's better. Talking to people that's worse. It's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. You've been satisfied by the bread of life, and there's a world around you starving. So will you go out and share the bread of life with them? It's so easy. It's so easy. You know, we've got tools and different things to help you, but you just say. You just tell them. You know, it, when, when you go to your waitress, when you go to lunch today, you talk to your waitress, they say, is there anything else we can do for you when they bring your food out? Steak cooked how you like it. If you're at Texas Roadhouse, you just smile and don't cut it. You say, well, there's nothing you can do for me, but is there anything I can pray for you for? And you would be amazed the kind of conversations that opens up. 
And then what do you do? You do the same thing Andrew did. You take them to Jesus. Take them to Jesus. So as we stand and as our musicians come forth, I'm going to give you a chance this morning. If you have not partaken of the bread of life, give you a chance to come to Jesus this morning. If you have not been living a life of obedience, give you a chance to come to Jesus this morning. If you just want to come and pray about somebody you need to witness to, somebody you need to take to the bread of life, that's what this sign shows. This sign shows that when they were looking for a prophet, they were looking for the prophet like to Moses, Jesus was better than Moses. He came and brought more. He came and brought a new law. He came and he brought a better blessing. He came and leads his people into the promised land. Stricken once, crucified. But he lives forevermore, as we sing. Three hundred eighty-five. Three hundred.